Imagine you work on logistics at Apple. It's October 2020, and it's a pandemic. You need to get your new line of speakers, the HomePod Minis, into the hands of your rabid customers by mid-November. But disaster strikes. You can't get a shipment from your factory in Vietnam to your customers in California because the ocean freighter you were going to use canceled its stop in Hanoi. You need to hit your deadline, but the pandemic is making it harder to ship goods around the world. You're Apple, the most valuable company in the world. What do you do? We'll have the answer in this episode of the Informations 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. Think of us as a clubhouse room, but you can listen to it anytime and you can't ask your own questions. In this episode, we bring you a couple tales of global capitalism. In the back half of the episode, reporter Wayne Ma has this fascinating story of how Apple managed its planes, its ships, and its trucks during the pandemic. Logistical high-wire acts are what made it all possible. And just to the disclaimer, Wayne's audio is not the best, but such is life in a virtual newsroom sometimes. But first, a report from our media desk, Tom Dotan and Jessica Tunkel who have the latest dispatch from the streaming wars. We're talking about potential consolidation from media conglomerates. We take a look at how Comcast's NBC Universal is building up its Peacock offering and have details on why a deal with AT&T-owned Warner Media might make sense. Here are my conversations with Tom, Jessica, and Wayne. Let's go to the front lines of the streaming wars, where our media reporters, Tom Dotan and Jessica Tunkel, went inside the efforts uh, of NBC Universal to make Peacock a thing in uh, the streaming universe. How's it going, Tom and, and Jessica? Good. How are we you, Corey? F- we're good. I feel very safe and comfortable at the front lines of the streaming wars. Jessica, take us through a little bit of. Um, set the scene a little bit for us here. NBC Universal obviously is a uh, sort of smaller competitor with their Peacock service, but you kind of uh, your reporting showed kind of just how I don't know how much progress, how little progress they've made in in trying to make a dent, uh, getting subscribers here. First of all, NBC is part uh, is owned by Comcast, which is one of the biggest cable companies in the country and they had wrestled for years and years about whether they should launch a streaming service because if they were going to do that it would compete obviously with their own cable business which is where they get make most of their cash so finally they decide we're going to do this they launch peacock they call it Peacock. It was called Scuny at one point, but then they went with the Peacock name after the NBC logo. But instead of trying to go head to head with Netflix, which is a subscription offering, obviously, or HBO Max for that matter, they decided to focus it on an, an ad supported, primarily free offering, right? So if you are a Comcast subscriber, as well as a subscriber to Cox, and now they have a deal with Charter. You can get you can get and Peacock for free. You can watch The Office with ads. You can watch your favorite golf with ads and SNL, or you can pay five dollars to have less ads, or you can pay ten dollars a month to have no ads. What we have discovered is 
Jeff Schell, the CEO of NBC, he really wants to focus on growing the subscription offering. And really what he wants to do is to figure out a way to grow this without having to go head to head and spend billions of dollars to compete with Netflix, which really the only way to do that is to merge with someone like Warner Media, which, you know, we reported that he has said before he became CEO that he thought this was going to be inevitable, that someday they were going to have to merge with Warner Media to be able to have, which owns HBO and now HBO Max, to have the scale to compete with Netflix. So, Meanwhile, I'm sort of digressing a little, they're looking at partnerships for now. Who can we partner with? How could we bundle our offering with someone else's offering to better compete? Because they're not going to invest the billions of dollars they would need to to compete with Netflix to grow their, their offerings. So this is where they are right now. But it's important because it's the first stage is what we think is eventually going to turn into M&A, right? First, everyone launches their services, then they figure out their dance partners, then they start talking about mergers. Why is NBCU potentially handcuffed in sort of how hard they invest in their streaming service? Like they, they are owned by a, you know, a behemoth in Comcast. Um, why can't they just throw a bunch of money at this thing like, like Disney? Has? Yeah, this is a good question. And I think, you know, it's all about risk versus reward and how, you know, how committed you really want to be to this whole you know, entity. And we've seen with Disney, you know, they really, of the major media companies, went out first and most aggressively saying, we are all in on this. We are a streaming business and we are going to move very quickly to put as much of the best content that we have on Disney+. And it's worked incredibly well. Um, they have more than 87 million subscribers um, and they have really built their very quickly uh, a lead among traditional media companies as a streaming business. But then you look at the other ones, and, and you know, last year Jessica and I reported on some of the challenges that HBO Max is having. You know, they're owned by AT and T and NBC Universal. They're owned by Comcast. It's just a question of like, how worth it is it to to invest the billions and billions of dollars yearly in order to make this work? And I think there's some real issues that the parent companies, the streaming services, have when it comes to figuring out the level of commitment that they have. You know, when it comes to AT&T, this is a company that has to take care of their wireless infrastructure and, and keeping cell towers up and running. And they also took on a huge amount of debt when they bought HBO or when they bought Warner Media. So that's something they have to service on a regular basis. You know, Comcast, you know, Jessica, you've reported on them a lot longer than I have. So maybe you have a better sense internally as to how they think about their costs. But I think they're also a company that benefits more from the success of its broadband business and, and giving people, you know, internet access than they do from the general, you know, progress and success of NBC Universal. So I think for them they're always weighing like, how much is it really worth it for us to keep pouring money into something that just doesn't benefit our stock value that much? I, I, I think just to that point, um, you know, when I talk to people at NBC about Peacock about streaming. They're like, it's all about Peacock. We're all about Peacock. We're so focused on Peacock. This is our big thing. When I talk to people at Comcast about Peacock, they talk about what they call their flex box, which is their, it's like a device that you, if you don't have cable and you're a broadband customer with Comcast, you plug it in and you can get access to all your stre the streaming services. It's a Roku competitor. It's a Roku competitor. Exactly. So I think they see Peacock as a complement to selling this flex box to, I mean, it's all about broadband for them. To Tom's point, that's what they're focused on. So they don't really care about 
you know, how big Peacock is. They just want it to be another it's like an added a value add to the broadband customer right um meanwhile okay so peacock is not investing a ton in original programming but they are trying to get creative with the resources they do have um what did your reporting show uh, sort of about some of the latest moves they're making to try to you know do do what they can with the limited budget i mean i think as opposed to everyone else who's pouring a lot of money into original programming they're they are trying to partner with other people. So they've announced deals with A&E. They announced a deal recently with WWE, where they're basically folding WWE's subscription streaming service into Peacock. So only paid subscribers of Peacock will be able to access that content. I mean, the other thing to point out about this older, more established programming is it already comes with a viewership, right? So it's a little bit, it's less expensive to acquire customers that way. Um, So that's one thing that they're looking at. I mean, they also, their whole pitch is that we've only focused on the ad supported offering, right? Like we've only focused on this free offering, but their numbers are not, they've been talking about the 33 million signups, but our reporting found that they have about, 11 million households that are actively using the service. So um, that's more, you know, that's a lot less than 33, but you have to remember that more than one person is in the household. So, I mean, they have a lot of work to do, I think. Right. Meanwhile, you lay the seeds in your story for a potential merger down the line, um, probably not with any time within the year, um, yeah, a potential merger between NBCU and Warner Media. Um, what can you tell us about sort of what you learned about the potential for a deal and, and sort of why a deal might make sense? Well, I guess we should start with the caveat on that, that it seems very, very unlikely that anything would transpire this year. There's still a lot of the streaming wars and, and the battles to play out before we get to a point where various uh, infantry uh, alliances are going to be formed. I, f- I hope I'm doing a good job with, with this metaphor. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, totally. It's a good analogy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really I mean, it's a I, pincer I, movement I, where two sides are all trying to coalesce around Netflix. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll take some time. That said, you know, these sort of deals happen when the executives that are in place want the deals to happen and are, and are very much behind it. And, you know, as, as Jessica and I dug up as we were talking to people in the know, it sounds like Jeff Schell, who is the CEO of NBC Universal, he came in at the beginning of last year, before he was CEO, believed very strongly that this is the only real outcome for NBCU, that, you know, they just don't have the heft. They don't have enough shows in their catalog. They don't have the budget coming to them from Comcast to be able to make a real run at uh, Netflix and, and now Disney. And so as they looked at the landscape and saw who else was kind of in the same boat as them, Jeff sort of saw it as, well, look at, you know, and, uh, the Warner Media, and they're going to put out their streaming service, and they're going to be in the same boat that we are. So let's just be smart about it and, and try to combine forces with them or, or do some sort of you know, major M&A type activity that sees, you know, our combined catalogs, um, you know, really being brought to bear. Because the, the other quick side of it, too, is that, you know, Disney was in the same boat. You know, they bought a ton of assets from Fox that really made the Disney Plus offering a lot more 
attractive. You know, it gave them control over Hulu, you know, gave them The Simpsons. So it's not like this is an unprecedented way to make um, a streaming service work. On the contrary, I think it's kind of key to making it work. And so, uh, you know, our understanding is that's sort of the way that Jeff views the world, or at least viewed the world back then, you know, TBD on, on whether he's changed his mind as all, at all, although I, I got to say it's unlikely he has. All right, guys. Well, fascinating stuff. Um, thanks for bringing us a view from the front lines. Thanks, Corey. COVID-19 has laid bare logistics issues across the world in the world of electronics and consumer products. So how does Apple, the world's most valuable company, get around it? Wayne Ma, the informations reporter out of the Hong Kong Bureau, had that had a big story this week uh, laying out exactly what's been going on inside of Apple's logistic teams amid the pandemic. One of the things that I always wondered was how Apple and other companies have kind of faced this challenge that has happened during COVID of uh, moving products from one point to another. How did, uh, you know, sort of the pandemic strain, how these companies and particularly Apple get products out of their factories, distribution centers into retailers or into consumers' hands? So one of the things that wasn't obvious to me when I started reporting the story, but is obvious to anybody who knows anything about logistics is that a lot of the world's products are shipped on passenger planes, cargo planes that are dedicated to products. When passenger planes were grounded during the pandemic, that erased or evaporated a lot of the world's air cargo capacity. Huh. You know, as, as passengers are booking a, a flight on Delta, they're also shipping iPhones essentially underneath their feet? Or explain that a little bit more. Right. Exactly. It's um, uh, people in the industry, they call it belly capacity. So without that um, capacity, you know, and, and Apple typically ships most of its products by plane just because it's, even though it's more expensive, it's faster. They can sell more products that way in a quicker amount of time. They were forced to resort to chartering uh, you know, individual planes dedicated to air cargo. And that is actually something that I was told from sources that Apple only does as a last resort because of the high price. Of it. Yeah, I mean, that would be so th they are chartering private jets to get products out of particularly out of Asia, is that, is that right? Or, or Yeah, so so if you want to map out Apple's supply chain, the way it works is that most of the products are made in China. Increasingly, they've been starting to make uh, products in Vietnam. But during the pandemic, every single leg of that journey uh, received delays due to various reasons, You know whether it was you know increased social, distance, social distancing measures that prevented um, workers from you know, breaking down cargo as frequently. Right. And as you mentioned, there are horror stories about companies like Peloton, you know, sort of having pretty serious shipping delays. And for Apple, this was a really high stakes time. Obviously, they were launching, I think, four new major products, a couple new series of the Apple Watch, actually. You had the AirPods Max headphones. And then you had the, the HomePod mini speakers, which you detailed in your story, sort of the lengths that Apple had to go to to get those two customers on time. What what happened with the HomePod mini speakers? During the pandemic, Apple was forced to get creative to figure out how to get its products the fastest way possible. So, for instance, now they've started expanding into Vietnam, you know, they started making the HomePod mini, some of the HomePod mini speakers there. And they had arranged to ship the HomePod mini speakers directly from a port in Vietnam, a port of my phone, uh, to California. But that uh, stopped, that port call got canceled by that ship. And so they, they had two options. They could either still ship it from Vietnam, but it would have to be sent to Singapore first, where it would have had to be unloaded and loaded back onto a larger ship 
for the travel to the U.S. So that would have added like a much extra, too much time. The other thing they could have done was just truck the products, you know, 1,400 miles to the port of Shanghai, which is much busier and has more ships going direct from Shanghai to the U.S. And so that's what they did. In, in Shanghai, they also had access to um, these kind of express container ships uh, that the industry calls fast boats. And these ships are smaller, um, but they can travel much faster than regular container ships. And so even though it takes me four weeks to sail to the U.S. from Shanghai on these bigger ships, on these smaller ships, it only took two weeks. And so that's what they did. And they paid a premium for it. Was your takeaway from all this reporting and particularly taking a step back and sort of um, understanding how Apple's financial performance has been lately, um, did some of these moves seem to work? Uh, like, do, do you think we saw in Apple's earnings last month, for instance, that, you know, that they were able to kind of pull a rabbit out of their hat, for instance, or is it, is it kind of too tough to know how logistics kind of played in to uh, what I think was a record-breaking quarter for them? Well, I think that uh, if, if things are done right, which it sounds like they were for Apple, you don't notice any change, right? You don't notice any disruption. Um, and so I think customers for the large part didn't really notice that there were big delays, at least on the shipping side. On the supply side, it's a little different because obviously the pandemic had disrupted factory production. And um, there are some issues with that. Like, you know, the iPhone was announced a month later uh, and uh, the AirPods Max, you know, these over here headphones, uh, you can't you have to wait five weeks for them. But those aren't logistics problems. Those are supply issues. So logistics, logistics is half the battle. Right, right. For Apple, it was a success. You know, people really didn't notice much. You know, you're not seeing an, an unusual amount of complaints, uh, you know, at least related to shipping of the products. And yeah, I mean, the fact that Apple had this record quarter despite, you know, COVID, uh, I think shows that... Um, what they did worked is this any all an example of apple's just like increasing advantages over competition you know can can smaller companies get away with spending you know in, in a way that apple did or you know did this tell you maybe that actually apple is actually a little bit scrappier than you might think and that their you know sort of financial advantages didn't play in didn't really play a part here i, mean, I definitely think that those financial advantages helped a lot but uh, I think what it really speaks to is that um, increasingly the supply chain is getting more complex and that is leading to more challenges that um, in some cases are only kind of unique to Apple, right? I mean, Apple, Apple is still very conservative with um, its cash. I mean, they, they didn't, you know, they could have probably, I, I heard that they could have got more planes, but they just felt that the prices were too high. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it speaks to kind of Apple's conservative nature when it comes to cash, but also it's a, uh, it's increasing challenges. Well, Wayne, great reporting as always. Thanks so much for, for coming on the 411. Well, thanks for having me. That's our episode this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Wayne Ma, Tom Dutton, and Jessica Tunkel for joining me on this episode. And thank you to Ariella Markowitz for producing the 411 as always. Have a great weekend, everybody.